I wanted to start with a story. And the story is about Prince Siddhartha when he was a youth. So uh, in his teens, and he was out taking a walk with his cousin, Devadatta, in the fields. And on that particular day that they were taking a walk, uh, a majestic white swan flew over the fields. You know, so beautiful. And Siddhartha was looking at it with awe as Devadatta was pulling out his arrow and his bow and shooting the swan. The swan fell out of the sky and hit the ground. And both of those youths ran towards the swan. Prince Siddhartha got there first, and he quickly removed the arrow from the swan's wounded wing and put some cool leaves on it you know, to try to heal this injury that had happened, while Devadatta ran up behind him and was very angry and said, that's my swan. What are you doing trying to heal my swan? You know? And Prince Siddhartha calmly looked at Devadatta and said, you know, cousin, if the swan had been killed, then he would be yours by right. But because the swan was not killed, whoever reached the swan first is its uh, owner and uh, belongs to them. And I reached the swan first. And he kept taking care of the swan and holding it and soothing it. And Devadatta got even more angry and ran off in a huff saying, but it's my swan. So that was the birthing moment of a very adversarial relationship between Prince Siddhartha, who later became the Buddha, and his cousin Devadatta that lasted for the rest of their lives. In talking about befriending uh, the difficult person, here we are on this journey in this retreat, and we started with ourselves, sending these wishes of friendliness to ourselves. Then we've sent them to those we hold dear. Uh, Now we are blessing the familiar stranger who I hope is more familiar to you now than they were this morning. Maybe they're starting to become dear to us. And then tomorrow we transition yet again in the instructions to include those whom we're challenged by. And then further in the retreat, we will open it up uh, to the possibility that we can include more and more beings in this heart of befriending. But tomorrow's instructions are on this infamous difficult person. And I know from being involved with this metta retreat for so many years that every year some of us come to this retreat actually purposefully just to work with the difficult person. We've got someone or a couple of someones and we think, oh, I'll go on a meta retreat and work that out. I need a whole week. <laughs> of course, we, we, sometimes we need a whole life. Uh, it's mysterious how the relationship transforms with those we're challenged by. And for those who come to this retreat every year with that intention, a very venerable intention, they're often quite disappointed to hear that the instruction for the day of working with the infamous difficult person is to choose someone who is not your most difficult person. We actually start where it's easy. 
So someone that is mildly irritating or annoying that we don't have a lifelong adversarial relationship with is where we start. Uh, And we start there for two reasons. One is that if we start at our greatest degree of challenge and we hit the wall of, I can't do this, then we feel as if we've failed. And it feels as if everyone that challenges us isn't workable. And actually, this process is very workable. Uh, But we start where it's easy, so that we can experience that directly, so that I don't have to be the voice telling you it's workable. We can each look and see for ourselves that it's workable. And the second reason is that the seeds of those who we are most challenged by in our lives, the highest degree of difficulty, actually start with someone that we're mildly irritated with. So if we can work with somebody that's a manageable degree of challenge, then we start to see, oh, these are the habit patterns that come up. So maybe we could call this Dharma talk my difficult person, metaphorically. Right? As I was working with the, the cycles of, of birthing this talk, it was a hard birth. Oh, it took a long time. So I started to learn about the cycles of how I relate to a difficult person. And then I can apply those same understandings to higher and higher degree of challenge. Uh, and we start to see how the very tendencies of greed and hatred or dislike or aversion and confusion are actually in play at all levels of difficulty. So I would say to you that in some ways this talk, because of where we are in the retreat, is mainly um, some words of inspiration and reflection for our practice of working with the difficult person tomorrow. So someone who's mildly difficult But I will also acknowledge to you that uh, some of the tools that I will be sharing with you tonight, uh, I've been also working with with some of the most difficult people that I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, Again, so it's a process of time. You know, it takes a lot of patience. Father Thomas Keating says, If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone. So who are the difficult people? I'm sure even just saying difficult person as often as I have already in the last 10 minutes, you've already got yours in mind. Our muse, as Heather Martin calls it. So a first category of difficult people would be those who are mildly annoying, those who slight us, those who set off our sense of protecting I and mine. And that's where we start uh, with our practice on this retreat. It also feels very important to acknowledge that each of us carries, uh, in one way or another in our being, those deeper wounds. You know, those who have harmed us Uh, Sometimes it feels like irreparably. Uh, And unless it changes, I believe that Sylvia will be talking a little bit more about that category further on in our journey of this retreat. Another category of difficult people uh, 
uh, are a little more complex. And it appears as somebody who is challenging to us, but there's more to the story. And the more to the story usually involves a kind of collective difficult group. So it comes up in situations where there's a conflict between two people of a greater or lesser degree. And there's extra reactivity because behind the person that we're experiencing as difficult is a whole difficult set of conditions based on community conditioning. So it might be conditions around uh, ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or class. And it adds a whole level of difficulty to this person standing in front of us that is acting out of that conditioning and yet behind them are hundreds of years of conditioning. It makes it much more painful. So I'll be sharing a little bit about this in in this talk. And then the last category of difficult people, Sylvia mentioned this morning, she said, ah yes, sometimes I am my own most difficult person. Isn't that the truth? Haven't we seen that here already this week in moments? And then other times we are our own greatest cheerleader and deepest ally. And may we have all seen that this week. You know, if not yet, then soon. May that be so. So it's also true. So I was thinking about how to approach this topic, and I'm going to be talking about kind of different reflections and tools and ways of approaching our journey with those we find challenging in terms of mind, heart, and body. Uh, And that's just for the purpose of laying it out clearly. We know by now that mind, heart, and body are intimately intertwined and in any given moment of meditation we are working all those levels. So we'll start with the mind and share with you a quote from Pema Chodron that I actually use as a practice instruction for myself and just a reminder in working with difficult people, people who are challenging She says, others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. Right? They say or do something, and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. Thank you for provoking me today. (laughs) Difficult person. (laughs) I'm not saying it's always that easy, but a sense of humor sure helps. So when I think of the experience of the conflicted mind, you know, and, and whenever there's a difficult, somebody who may not have been a difficult person, suddenly appears in the difficult person guise, right? And the mind gets all worked up, and it's explaining what happened, and bargaining, and saying why we're right, and they're wrong, and rehearsing, and rehashing, and on and on and on. 
uh, difficulty always produces a lot of thoughts. I'm sure you've noticed. Difficulty of any, any kind. So think of the experience of the conflicted mind. Is this, is this experience of, I am not happy. And then the experience of the awakened mind is, may I be happy. It remembers that, oh, transformation might be possible in the very moment of noticing the conflict. Might be. So in terms of tools for working with the mind that's in reactivity with anyone, or we could even say anything, difficult, it will not surprise you that the first thing I mention is mindfulness. And one of the things that I love about this Metta Retreat and this particular teaching team that I'm a part of is our love for the interplay of Metta and mindfulness. So I think the kindest, most friendly thing we could possibly do when the mind is going berserk is to notice what's happening. Uh, Some people have been describing, oh, I'm giving those puppies that Heather Martin talked about in her Dharma talk, I'm giving them names. And I thought, how wise. Because when there's a young child or a puppy and you don't know their name, they just run around and they're excited, they're having fun, and they're creating all kinds of chaos and upheaval. And all over the map, that's what our minds do. And when we can just say their name, oh, rehearsing, oh, I'm right. Oh, the puppy kind of calms down. And then maybe in that moment we have a choice to say, "Uh uh-huh, this thought pattern. Right now we're doing loving-kindness practice. You say the phrases, and we'll just see how that goes. And the mind goes, grumble, 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 because, you know, clearly it wants to fix this problem with the difficult person. What tremendous caring that needing to fix comes from. If we didn't care, we wouldn't want to fix it. Well, it's okay, do the phrases now. Okay. Then I thought I would talk a little bit about this second step that Heather Martin was sharing about in the instructions this morning. Uh, She suggested with the neutral person that we bring up an image or a felt sense of the person. And then the second step was really a step of reflection. So she was mentioning with those we hold dear, it's the second step is a process of appreciating ourselves or that one. And with the familiar stranger or neutral person, it's a process of reflection. I find that second step extremely helpful also when we're working with the difficult person category. And I'll be talking about this more when I give the instructions tomorrow morning. Um, A few pieces to this, reflections that I've found helpful to use as part of that second step. All of these reflections have something to do with calling up the wisdom that moves through us and is available to us when we can calm down the reactivity. Whenever anything's challenging, reactivity increases. When we can calm it down, wisdom is available. So these are reflections that uh, invoke wisdom to arise. And the first one is about change. And it's reflecting on changing relationships. And I want to tell you a little bit about the teacher who taught me this practice because uh, she says a testament to me of 
how to work with difficult people who are backed with difficult conditioning. Okay. So her name is Kelson Wongmo, and I studied with her in fall of 2010 in Dharamsala, India. So that's, where, um, that's the seat of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in exile. And I studied with her the entire fall, and she taught me this teaching and many other teachings. She is a nun. She's been a nun since she was 18 years old, and she's probably around 40 now. Um, incredible scholar and incredible teacher. And she's been studying these teachings her whole life. This is, this is all she does. And in the Tibetan tradition, they have a series of degrees that one can um, achieve through study. And one of those degrees is called a Geshe degree. It's basically the equivalent of four PhDs because it takes 18 years to get to the first level of a Geshe degree. And then there are more levels after that. So uh, advanced study. She finished her 18 years of study uh, soon before I met her. But there was this problem. They hadn't conferred on her the title of Geshe yet. And the reason they had not conferred on her the title of Geshe is there'd never been a Western woman uh, who had done that level of study before. And the tradition uh, comes out of a lineage of patriarchy. And so the monks were looking at each other, what to do? When I talked to her about this, it'd be so easy to have righteous indignation about that. How could they? But I thought, I'm going to ask her what her experience is. So I did. I said, what's it like to not have the title of Geshe when you have a Geshe degree? And she said, you know, she said, it takes so long for this conditioning to be uh, created. Hundreds of years for these belief systems to be set and lived. She said, I can't expect to just come in here uh, and 18 years later have all that be changed. So I have a tremendous amount of patience. I said, well, what's it like to not be treated with the respect that your years of practice and study deserve? And she said, well, you know, the, the high lamas, the high teachers uh, who have trained me, treat me with all of the respect that they would anybody who has done my level of practice. And, you know, it touches me and I appreciate it. What was interesting was what she didn't say. I caught the underlying line, though, which was some of the newer monks did not treat her with that respect. And then I started to hear some stories about this. How do we work with the difficulty when there's a whole line of conditioning behind it? So this is one of the practices she taught me. We're working with a difficult person. We could reflect on how at some point in time this person was a stranger to us. We'd never met them. They didn't even exist in our reality. We went along, everything was fine. One day we met them. It's entirely possible uh, that they weren't our difficult person right when we met them. Sometimes they are immediately, but oftentimes they aren't. They actually change roles, and especially with difficult people who are close to us, they do change roles often. They may be a stranger, and then we meet them, and then they become a friend, and our life is connected with them. And then something happens. 
I think about this with intimate relationships sometimes. Something happens and they become, we could even say, our enemy in a metaphorical type of way. So many of us have gone through this in close friendships and intimate relationships. They become our enemy. Someone that we didn't even know and we were fine and then they were our friend and our beloved. Our whole life revolved around them and then, difficult person. And then what happens? They could very easily become our friend again. Same person. Or they could very easily become a stranger again. Same person. Always changing. I really think about how I carry inside myself every single category. Self, you know, I'm my own best benefactor when I am. I'm my best friend when I am. Worst difficult person in the world. Nobody has ever treated me as badly as I've treated myself. So true for many of us. Uh, And then the us-ness, these all beings. So I reflect on that a lot when I'm working with a difficult person. Ah, first their relationship with me is this, now it's this. It's going to change again. And at some point they'll die and I'll die or we'll die simultaneously and that's it. (laughs) I mean, one of the little phrases I say to myself when it just gets too intense, it's a simple phrase from another tradition, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because it will, one way or another. A second reflection is remembering universality. And this is really, for me, the piece about remembering that I am the difficult person too. So somebody else is challenging to me and it's all about them and I'm right and they're wrong. And you know how it goes. I mean, we could each tell the story very well on a universal level. Uh, But I've had some interesting moments on retreat. So these are mildly difficult people examples. This actually happened to me once. I was sitting in meditation, and somebody was breathing so loudly near me. Has that ever happened to you? You know, there's the, the, I just think on every retreat we actually need somebody in that category of loud breather. They're very important. We need one in every meditation hall. But here's the story. They're breathing loud. I'm getting more and more annoyed. I'm thinking, oh, can I, maybe I'll just be mindful of their breath because I can't even find my breath. And the minute that I had the thought I'll be mindful of their breath, I suddenly realized that it was me that was breathing so loud. And that probably everybody around me was, they were relating to me as the difficult person in that moment. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Another reflection I quite like, it's kind of in the spirit of the teachings of Byron Katie, who uh, is a, a wisdom teacher uh, very much in her, I consider her teachings to be kind of cousins of what we teach here. Uh, Not directly Buddhist, but certainly close cousins. And she talks about the practice of turning it around. If we can have that moment where we can see the situation from the side of the other that we have really othered in that moment. Um, Very transformative. We all know this. And for me, I realized that that practice started when I was eight years old. 
And I was a, a very sensitive type of kid. And when other kids would bully me or I would see other people being bullied, it, it really impacted me. Very upsetting for me. And I remember adult, an adult saying to me when I was eight years old, you know, they're mean because they're hurting. And I don't know what it was about that statement, but it stayed with me the rest of my life. And even when I was nine, ten years old, and somebody would be giving me a hard time, and I would take it so personally, it hurt so much, you know. But I would remember that adult's words. They're mean because they're hurting. I would think to myself, is that really true? They seem so strong and sure of themselves. Could they really be hurting? Is that why they're hurting me? And my mind would go, nah, they're not hurting. (laughs) But something in me knew that what that adult told me was true. They were hurting. And that has guided me the rest of my life. If I can remember that they're hurting. Both Sylvia and Heather Martin uh, shared stories about the Buddha and Mara, kind of the archetypal difficult, you could call it difficult person, difficult energy, uh, the one that challenged the Buddha. And so I thought I'd add another story to the collection of Mara stories. And this story uh, comes, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh tells this story, and it's kind of out of his interpretation of the commentaries. The story actually happens after the Buddha is enlightened, fully enlightened. I personally am so reassured that the way that the teachings have been presented to us is that Mara still comes and visits the Buddha after the Buddha is enlightened. I think fully enlightened, what is that? But Mara still comes. It makes me think that enlightenment is something accessible and real instead of so outside of what I could understand. So the way that the story goes is the Buddha sitting there in his, you know, enlightenment, uh, doing whatever he's doing, and Mara comes by. Another one of the Buddha's cousins is Ananda. And Ananda goes up to Mara and says, don't come in, don't come in, evil one. You know, the Buddha is busy, he cannot see you. And the Buddha pokes his head out the door and says, hey, who's out there? And uh, Ananda says, oh, it's Mara. I know you don't want to see him. And of course, the Buddha's response is, no, no. Mara is an important visitor. Please invite him in. Get tea. Prepare tea. Get some cookies. Welcome him. And so Mara comes in and sits down and starts doing his usual grumbling the way Mara does this and that. And, you know, do you really think that you're handling this situation appropriately, Buddha? Mara is often the, the voice of doubt in these stories. And the Buddha just looks at him and says, Oh, Mara, have some tea. They sip their tea. Yeah. Buddha says, oh, How are you doing, Mara? Oh, uh, prickly. Yeah. Oh, tell me a little more, Mara. And Mara finally says, you know, it's not so easy to be a Mara. People never invite me in for tea. Everyone's always trying to get rid of me. You know, I'm always irritated. That's lovely. But I love the Buddha's response. The Buddha's response is, you know, 
I hear you, Mara, and it's really not so easy to be a Buddha either. Everybody's always bringing me their problems and their schisms in the Sangha, and my cousin tried to kill me, and it's really not so easy being a Buddha either, and they just sip their tea. (laughs) Might we be able to do that with our difficulty, our difficult one? Sometimes when I'm working with a difficult person internally, I like to think about, I wonder how they would resolve this conflict. You know, if clearly I can tell they're having a difficulty with me too, I'll think, I wonder how they would resolve this conflict. And then sometimes intuition or wisdom will come to me, and it's totally outside my habit pattern. I'll think, oh, they would do this. And then I think, well, I would never do that. And then I think, well, actually, it's a really skillful response. It's just outside of my box. What if I tried it? I've actually had a couple situations resolved that way. But it means stepping outside of our protected, boxed-in sense of self and connecting. So then there's the heart. Dropping below the storyline. And moving more into what Donald was talking about is the process of purification. And when I think of the mood of the conflicted heart, I think of fear first. I think of rage, sadness, grief. I think of numbness. Sometimes we get very numb. And then I think of the flavor of the awakened heart in the face of this, and it's, oh, may I live with ease. May I be at ease. So, a different quote from Pema Chodron. And it's about naming the emotion and then dropping down into the body and feeling it. She says, Difficult people are the greatest teachers. Aspiring to rejoice in their good fortune is an opportunity to investigate our reactions and our strategies. How do we react to their good luck, good health, good news? With envy, fear, anger? What is our strategy for moving away from what we feel? Revenge? Self-denigation? What stories do we tell ourselves about it? She's a snob. I'm a failure. These reactions, strategies, and storylines are what cocoons and prison walls are made of. Then, right on the spot, we can go beneath the words to the nonverbal experience of the emotion. What's happening in our hearts, in our shoulders, in our guts? Abiding with the physical sensation is radically different from sticking to the storyline. It requires appreciation for this very moment. That's metta, right? It is a way of relaxing, a way to train in softening rather than hardening. It allows the ground of limitless joy, basic goodness, to shine through. And that's really what we've all been doing here. So important. We just feel it over and over again, and it feels like it's never going to change. But it does. And that's why I love having a week on retreat together. So we really start to see that the most ingrained, Emotions living in here 
all these knots have moments where they aren't there. And we have time and space to see that directly. When it comes to the emotional world of the heart and difficulty, the flavor of compassion always feels the most relevant to me. And in my own meditation practice, when there was extreme difficulty, and I have to say for me, whether it was a difficult person, and I came into meditation practice with some very challenging kind of core relationships I was working with, or just the difficulty of being human. It was, it was all the same. But I did a lot of metta practices early years. I've, I've actually done 50% uh, Brahma Vihara practice and 50% insight meditation practice the whole two decades of my practice life. It's always been 50-50. Uh, and this piece about compassion, because when things got really difficult, and I'd be trying to say to them, may you be happy or feel happy, may I be happy. It was like, forget it. I'm not happy, and I'm not happy with them, and this is unmanageable. So how do I make it manageable? And what I saw really clearly was, if I go down to the caring, that I wouldn't even be trying to do something like this if I didn't care. I can say, oh, I'm in pain. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. That felt like the most authentic phrases for me. And those are the compassion phrases. And there are times, yes, we're saying on this retreat, that you choose a set of phrases and stick with them through the whole retreat. It's very beneficial. But there may be a moment for you sometime in this process where the difficulty level goes beyond what is bearable and the wisest thing to do is just to notice, I am in pain. You know, Sylvia, sweetheart, you're in pain. We can all hear Sylvia's voice. Sweetheart, you're in pain. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. And just the truth of that then allows us to move back and go, may I wish myself well in this moment? Because I cannot turn to the difficult person in this moment. Right here is where the difficulty is. And in the end, it's not me and them, it's us. So wherever we direct it is okay. Then there's kind of working with the anger and resentment part. And I was remembering a quote that I quite like that's from the actress Carrie Fisher. And she says, resentment is like poisoning yourself and waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) We feed ourselves the poison and then we hope that they, whatever. And it's ill will. It's basic ill will. And metta is an incredible antidote to ill will, you know, as well as to fear. And so this piece about patience, you know, patience sometimes is, I think is not talked about enough in our community. It's not very sexy. You know, it's not intense, and we love intensity. But I'm a real strong believer in patience. I think patience has as a quality has supported me more through challenging times with challenging people than almost any other quality except for maybe compassion. 
So during the same time when I was living in Dharamsala, India, I had the privilege to receive teachings from His Holiness the Karmapa. He's the 17th Karmapa. And uh, he's kind of number two in line under His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, and will be a very important teacher in the global Buddhist world in the future. And he's in his mid-twenties now, and he's still very much in the middle of his own studies, re-reminding himself of what he already knows. But a couple times a year he gives teachings, uh, you know, a, a week or two of teachings. And one of the topics that he talked about the fall that I was there was patience. Actually, the whole time that he taught, he taught about compassion. But one of the topics was patience. And I really took his words to heart because, again, I look at his situation. This is somebody who uh, is in exile from his home country, like um, hundreds of thousands of others crossed the Himalayas on foot when he was young with what he could carry on his back. Uh, Very easily could have not survived, even though he was His Holiness the Karmapa. Uh, Is kind of... He lives in a small monastery near Dharamsala, um, but his seat, his home monastery, is in Sikkim, which is in another part of India, and he's not being allowed to go home to his home monastery. He regularly gets turned down for visas to come to the West to teach and to learn. Uh, There's a lot of difficult people, you could say, in his life. You know, and it's again one of these situations where it's one person perhaps being the difficult person saying no, but then behind that is a whole kind of line of conditioning. And it's, you could say it's political, political conditioning. So I really took his words to heart. And his teachings are advanced. But here's what he had to say about patience. The first thing he had to say was the importance of cultivating the patience to willingly endure suffering. I thought, oh, that's a good one for me, because I had a storyline for years in my early years of practice. If I only suffered enough, then I'd be free. I really believed it with my whole heart. I was so wrong. But I really believed it. I thought, oh, that's a good one for me. But when he described it, he said, it's not about... I will suffer and suffer and suffer. He said, use it as an opportunity to develop letting go, compassion, forgiveness when it's available, and patience. And I thought, oh, what he's talking about is the patience to see the gifts of a difficult person or situation. It takes a lot of patience to see the gifts in it when it's hard. He also talked about uh, the patience that it takes to over and over again kind of soothe the angry thoughts, you know, so that the reactivity can die down enough that the energy that is fueling the anger can be used for a skillful response. Now, this is brilliant. It's not saying roll over. It's saying quiet the reactivity so that we can respond with full power and wisdom. It takes a lot of patience to do that because we have to quiet it and calm it over and over again. We just think we've got a handle on our difficult person and then all the stories bubble up again. And then the last thing he talked about was 
what he called the patience of not retaliating. Now, he did not say the patience of not responding. I want to be really clear. Uh, Responding with wisdom and engagement and all of our tools is mandatory in this world right now. But there's a difference between responding and retaliating. He said it takes great patience to not retaliate when we're set off. And that in fact, there might be a possibility that we could have compassion for the very people that are setting us off. Because, and it goes right back to what the adult said to me when I was eight years old, they are hurting us because they are in pain. So could we open to that compassion and feel our collective pain and then out of the non-reactivity of doing that say, and now I'm going to say this thing, set this boundary, make this action that is skillful. So then we drop down another layer into the body itself. And what I have great interest in in terms of working with both mindfulness and metta with difficult people, person, circumstance uh, is this whole shared experience of our nervous system. Because when we get reactive about someone, our nervous system gets charged up. And we all know that we have three basic responses, which are fight, flight, and freeze. It is very helpful to notice, even if we aren't in a full fight, flight, or freeze response, which one is predominant when we're feeling reactive. Uh, And it's a real invitation to drop the attention down into the body. Because our adult minds cannot talk the fight, flight, freeze response down. That's not how it works. Uh, We actually have to be with it in the body itself. And to do that, we need skillful tools so that we don't just do this revving that keeps going and going and going and feeding the revving. So I've been very interested in this and kind of casually developing a whole body of mindfulness and metta tools around this issue of the nervous system. I'm just going to mention a couple right now that seem to work for a lot of people in a lot of different situations. One is ground. It's probably going to be no surprise to you. I mean, even the Buddha-to-be knew this when he was getting most rocked by Mara when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. You know, when Mara threw the worst Mara could come up with at the Buddha-to-be, what did the Buddha do? He took his right hand and put it on the earth and said, the earth is my witness to all of these skillful intentions and actions and my right to be free in this moment. We can do this. You know? And I do. When I'm being rocked, when I'm working with a difficult person, I put my hand on the earth and I feel it. So, you know, the earth is large enough to hold this. It might feel unworkable to me. The earth is vast. Yeah. And if I don't put my hand on the earth... Um, Another really helpful technique is just to bring, in the spirit of kindness, attention down in the body. Because when we get reactive, energy moves up. So if we bring attention down in the body and feel our feet, for example, or our hands, it helps the nervous system settle. 
When the nervous system settles, the emotions become more workable. When the emotions become more workable, the thoughts aren't as strong and incessant. When the thoughts aren't as strong and incessant, then we can remember to do the metaphrases. That's just one progression. I could have gone the other way. They're all interconnected. Something else that seems to be very helpful for many people, these dual qualities of grounding and spaciousness. When I think of spaciousness, it's really in the spirit of, of, may I feel safe, may I be safe. And so I love how so many of you have been talking about, you know, walking on the land and getting this sense of spaciousness. The sky is vast, the earth is vast, the sky is vast, or you walk under your favorite tree and take refuge there. Uh, And sometimes it's really, uh, whether it's asking nature or asking something that we feel to be larger than our contracted sense of self to hold us in the difficulty so that we don't get stuck in our smallness, which feels so unmanageable sometimes. There's a lot more I could say about the body, but those are two simple techniques. So as we move through our journey and stay committed to our process and drink in when it's delightful and bring up patience when it's hard and compassion, of course, you know, what is birthing through all of us is a little more or a lot more acceptance, equanimity, compassion, our usness, our interdependence, forgiveness. And I want to say just a word about forgiveness because it's such a tricky one and it always comes up on metta retreats. It really deserves a whole Dharma talk. In some years we give a whole Dharma talk on forgiveness but just to call it in to our community here. This is a quote from Dr. Fred uh, Luskin, who's the author of Forgive for Good. That sounds inspiring. Forgive for good. Uh, I'm not sure it works that way, but I love his quote. He says, forgiveness does not change the past, but it changes the present. Forgiveness means that even though you are wounded, you choose to hurt and suffer less. You choose to hurt and suffer less. Forgiveness is for you and nobody else. You can forgive and rejoin a relationship or forgive and never speak to that person again. And it's really true. And I want to say again, when we're working with the difficult person, whoever we choose as our muse to represent all difficult moments of relationship we've ever had in our life, we're going to choose one to represent all, so that we don't get uh, indigestion with a difficult person. Uh, And when we choose them to really acknowledge that this thing about being willing to try to connect with them, And even the question of forgiveness might arise in our minds. It's never condoning harmful actions. Never. It's never saying that if we've been harmed, it's okay. It's saying, 
I don't want to live in that pain every moment of my life anymore. I want to be free. May I be free. So there's a piece that feels important about the intention to forgive. And I love this phrase, uh, and sometimes I use it, I'll tag it on in various moments when I'm sending metta to the difficult person. I'll just say, as much as is possible, or as much as is possible in this moment, uh, you know, may I send you these phrases, and then send them. So there's just the spirit of, maybe I'm not giving it 100% blessings in this moment, but there's the intention to bless. There's the intention to connect as much as is possible in this moment. And we move back and forth. It's like we're blessing them, and then sometimes we need to bless ourselves for a while, and then we bless them again. It, It moves back and forth. And also to say what we already know, which is forgiveness is a process. It's not a single event. Recently I was reading, I never uh, read the novel The Kite Runner. I'm sure some of you have. It was set in Afghanistan, and I don't want to give away the story for those of you that haven't read it, but it's about um, a youth, Amir, and his growing up in Afghanistan before the wars, before the Russians invaded. Um, and his process of growing up in that culture and his family relationships. And the reason that I bring it up is there's this incredible quote from this book about forgiveness that I feel is very apt. And he was working around, uh, his father had died, and he discovered after his father died that his father told him all, basically every day of his life was lying to him about something so fundamental that when he discovered the truth, it changed his whole life. You know, it was one of those. And we have those in our family systems, many of us. And so he's working, and his father died, and he's working with forgiveness. And he, he, had, he was living at the States at the time that he discovered this, and he had to go back to the motherland of Afghanistan and have some adventures and talk to some people and work this out. But he had this insight. So he was sitting somewhere, and the thought came up about the lie again for the hundred millionth time. But this is what happened this time when the thought came up. He said, then I realized something. That last thought about the problem had no sting in it. Closing the door, I wondered if that was how forgiveness buds. Not with the fanfare of epiphany, but with the pain gathering up its things, packing up and slipping away unannounced in the middle of the night. I think often so. Often so. So you might wonder, how did the Buddha work with his cousin Devadatta after he became the Buddha? Because the story between the Buddha and Devadatta started with the swan, but it didn't stop there. Those of you that know this story, uh, Devadatta became quite an adversary for the Buddha. He actually tried to murder the Buddha three different times. The first time he sent assassins who came into the presence of the Buddha and couldn't commit their act. 
The second time he rolled a boulder off a cliff, and the boulder hit another boulder and avoided the Buddha. But a chip from that boulder sprung out and cut his foot. And so he was caused harm in this murder attempt. And the third time, Devadatta sent a mad elephant out when the Buddha was walking for his food, his alms round. And this elephant had killed others and, and, and sent him out to, to run over the Buddha. And the story goes that the Buddha met this mad elephant, charging mad elephant, with such intense loving kindness that the mad elephant bowed down, stopped, the reactivity settled, the elephant stopped and bowed down to the Buddha, as the story goes. It's a metaphor, it's beautiful, because that's what happens in our own hearts when we send metta to our own conflict and difficulty. There are moments when the very difficulty stops and bows down. I think what was beautiful about the Buddha's responses to Devadatta was that, first of all, he wasn't passive. He chose again and again to respond, not to react. So basically what he continuously did was not shoot the second arrow. Heather Martin was talking about this yesterday. The first arrow was Devadatta trying to divide the Sangha, trying to kill the Buddha. Uh, The second arrow would have been a lot of reactivity about that from the Buddha. He didn't do it. In fact, even when his foot was cut by the rock, it said that he stayed mindful, ardent, and unperturbed. I love that word, unperturbed. May we be unperturbed with our adversaries, inner and outer, as much as is possible in this moment. (laughs) So he didn't shoot the second arrow. He also was passionate about speaking the truth, in the face of this person that he, of course, wasn't finding his difficult person because he was free, but I'm sure everyone else found Devadatta to be their difficult person as they were trying to protect the Buddha. Um, He spoke the truth again and again, and he would say, Devadatta, you are confused, or Devadatta, you are out of line. You need to wake up. You know, so he wasn't harsh. He spoke the truth clearly. We need to do that sometimes with our difficult person. We're not going to do it here. We've got, you know, and so we don't need to rehearse it for three days, what we're going to say to them. We can trust that the practice itself will create the conditions for the truth to arise and be spoken. And we can trust in that as much as we can in this moment, which will change, you know. Sometimes we trust the process more than others. So I want to end with a quote that's by another, uh, somebody who is definitely a hero in working with difficult people. Uh, That person is Gandhi. And I could have told you a whole other story about Gandhi uh, meeting one of his difficult people and inviting them in for tea. Instead of having an argument, he invited one of the people he was having difficulty with in for tea. And they sat together and they talked. And out of that talk, new conditions arose for uh, freedom in India. You know, so this isn't just the story of the Buddha. We can do this. We could sit down with someone and have a cup of tea. Not our hardest, the mildly irritating one. <laughs> 
So I'm not asking you to believe this quote. I just find it highly inspiring. And I think about this quote in terms of inner and outer difficult ones. He says, When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it, always. So this is what I have to offer for your reflection. And I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your willingness to meet the difficulty. If everyone on this planet was willing to meet the difficulty the way that we are, the world would be a different place. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.